Habits and Health, episode 68. Welcome to the Habits and Welcome Health. Welcome to another edition of Habits and Health. My guest today, Luke Chow, who founded the Morpheus Clinic for Hypnosis in 2006. And has been host, practicing Tony hypnotherapy Winyard. ever since then under the philosophy of we make hypnosis make sense. We talk about how hypnosis can improve a, a person's habits and quality of life and about attitudes and we touch upon philosophy and some other areas that's this week's episode with luke chow if you enjoyed this episode please do share it with someone who would get some real value from it habits and health my guest today luke chow how are you luke good good how are you i'm pretty good so we find you in canada correct in toronto canada well, you've been living there a long time Yeah, I moved here for university. I, I went to U of T for English literature, and I decided to stay because I, I figured that, at least in the English-speaking world, I, I could either move to New York or London as a step up. But other than one of those two places, I, I can't imagine being anywhere else. We're now into spring, summer's approaching. I'd imagine the weather's a little bit better in Toronto now. <laughs> Spring was teased for a few days, just last weekend, and now it's gloomy again. And it was raining yesterday, but I, yeah. I am quite confident that with June approaching, spring is just around the corner, if not summer. Well, it's funny, in England, we complain about the weather, but the weather seems to me to be far worse in Toronto than it is in London. It, it's, it's up and down, but a lot of Canadians do fly south to Florida for the winter, so I, I can't blame them for that. <laughs> What, what is it that you do, Luke? Yeah. So shortly after graduating in 2006, I decided out of all things to start a practice in hypnotherapy. So after my English Lit degree, I got a certification in hypnotism, didn't really know what else to do with my degree, and decided that I'm going to be a professional communicator and a professional thinker of some kind. So I, 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 I was interested in hypnotism since I was a teenager, and, and I knew people were a livelihood doing this. So I thought, okay, well, I'll, I'll get trained, I'll open a practice, I'll do it like everyone else. Uh, I didn't know at the time that at almost the age of 40, I would still be doing it. But that's where I am. So it's the Morpheus Clinic for Hypnosis in Toronto. During the pandemic, we've been doing more outreach to the rest of the world and things like being a podcast guest, starting a TikTok channel, posting more free content on YouTube. And I, I'm finding that the messages I deliver one-on-one -on -one to my paying clients really resonate with most of the audience who listens elsewhere. And I, I figure that since I have a fairly well-established practice here, I might as well just share really cool thoughts and good ideas that I've come to realize over the past 15 plus years. What do you think it was that attracted you to hypnotism in the first place? So before I was an English student, as an adolescent, I, I wouldn't say I was really a happy kid. I was quite bookish and I spent a lot of time in the public library just pulling books off of shelves and reading them. And among all the books I read, some of the ones that resonated with me the most had to do with how one might use one's mind to improve one's lot in life. So books about meditation and Buddhism and Zen and 
along with those books about hypnotism, books about self-development or personal development really resonate with me. And you know, then my degree's in English Lit, so I studied how the masters of the language used the language in ways that still resonate with us like 400 years later. I, I would say that it's not just that I chose hypnotism as a profession. It's also that it seems like each of the clients who comes in generally likes what I do. And then they come back or their friends come in. And it's not just that I've decided to start this career. It's also that my clients are choosing me. Are there many different types of hypnotism? There there definitely are. So hypnotism in most jurisdictions is not a regulated practice. Hmm. So if you see a dentist, you know they're going to do a root canal in a specific way. There are hmm. best practices backed by lots of research and published studies and a good scientific foundation. Hypnotism is more like yoga instruction or fitness training in that because it's not one of those government-regulated professions with four-year colleges, the, the training is hit and miss. There are excellent hypnotists out there, and there are also people who've taken a short course and who haven't really thought through what they're saying to the clients that they have in somewhat of a vulnerable or at least open-minded state. I would say there are as many different schools of thought as there are instructors. And partly because of, of the province that I practice in, I practice in a style that is clearly not psychotherapy. So it is possible to practice hypnotism in a style where you're taking people back to their past, healing their inner child, and doing work that kind of looks like psychotherapy. The work I do is the more traditional style of hypnotism where I'm using verbal suggestion, or in other words, my spoken words to affect the client in very specific ways. The interesting thing is that once you practice like this for any number of years, you start to get good at it. And those who never practice or develop skill in using verbal suggestion in this way, they, they often downplay it. But I, I think hypnotists really, we can be first-rate hypnotists, but we'll never be first-rate psychotherapists. Are there any typical sort of conditions that you're helping people with? What, what are the main uses for what you do? Yeah, I would categorize all of the cases I see as situations the client has found themselves in where a change in mindset or a change in attitude or perspective will help tremendously or even alleviate the problem altogether. And that means I'm not really doing the kind of work that looks at someone's past. I'm not really doing exploratory work. I am leaving that to the licensed psychotherapists. In some jurisdictions, psychotherapy is still unregulated, so there is no such thing as a license. But in Ontario, there, there is. But then I'm doing what the psychotherapists tend not to do, which is to provide very clear, directive, strong guidance as to what to think, because that's the profession. That's hypnotism, using our words to provide very clear, strong, direct guidance for what to think. So, of course, I spend a lot of time trying to figure out what's the best way to think to live a high quality of life. 
what to think? That's a very interesting statement. So how do you mean? Can you elaborate when you say what to think? Yeah. Obviously, anyone who's educated to a certain degree takes pride in knowing how to think and not just being told what to think. Mm. And also, if you become a client of a psychotherapist, they'll also say they'll teach you how to think or how to solve your own problems. They won't just tell you what to think. Mm. But that leaves a really big gap in the the available services um, for someone whose problem can be resolved if someone just straight up told them what to think. And I'll give you an example. I'll pick smoking cessation Hmm. as an example, because hypnotists famously work with smokers. And most people know someone who's quit smoking through hypnotism. So I'm going to demystify it a little bit. So most of the available solutions for tobacco smoking would be nicotine replacement therapy or pharmaceuticals, Hmm. none of which teach the the client or or I guess the the patient how a non-smoker deals with stress, how a non-smoker gets up in the morning and starts their day, how a non-smoker copes when other people are smoking around them. So when I'm working with my smoking clients, I am, in a way, giving them the worldview of a non-smoker. Now, if you're a non-smoker or if, if, if the listener is a non-smoker, it's just the most obvious thing in the world. If someone's smoking, you step away from them. And if you're stressed, you take a break. And breaks with clean air are the best breaks. And if you went outside and someone's tainted the air with smoke, that break just got ruined for you. So that's how a non-smoker thinks. And it's quite different from how a smoker thinks. Because a smoker, when they're stressed, they tell themselves they need a cigarette. Hmm. And that's not actually a truthful statement because probably what they need is some relief from the stress. Cigarettes, a joke I often make is if cigarettes actually relaxed people, then smokers would be the most relaxed people in the world. But not tobacco smokers. They're not the most relaxed people in the world. So. In the few hours that I have with a client, the the hypnosis part is about getting their analytical thinking to take a step back so they can hear what I have to say. And then all the rest of, uh, of the session is me communicating to the client very clearly and directively a helpful way to think. So for a smoker, I teach them to think like a non-smoker. For someone who's afraid of public speaking, I teach them how to think like someone who's become very accustomed to or even feels empowered by public speaking. To use a computing analogy, I don't really view people as having a hardware problem. I view them as having bugs in the software that I can patch. Someone comes to see you because they want to stop smoking. So is this something that can be, you can help in just one session or does it require a number of sessions or is it dependent on the person? Yeah. So it it does depend on the client. The message being communicated during hypnosis makes a really big difference as to how many hours of listening that client needs to achieve what they want to achieve. Because a really you know, unhelpful message, it doesn't matter how many hours of listening the client is, they're going to be more confused afterward and not they won't have their thinking clarified. So a lot has to do with the message being delivered, which is why I think in terms of, okay, what's a good worldview for a high quality life? And that's why I'm appearing as guests. It's not just to talk about hypnotism, it's to also share 
worldviews that can help people in the situations that, that they're in. So in some cases, after one session, if someone's not a heavy smoker, it clicks for them. They were born as a non-smoker, their smoking years were temporary, and they are going to return to normal. Any withdrawal symptoms they experience are just part of that transition back to normal. And once they're back to normal, they're just not going to go there again because their adolescent phase didn't have to continue that long. So in some cases, it might take two visits or two hours of listening to reach that point where they're like, oh, okay, I got it. I'm, I'm back to normal now. In some cases, it might be three, but it, for, for smoking specifically, in my experience, when the message is right, it's rarely more than that. Does it require them to be really focused in the session with you? Yeah. So I usually use the word client. I'm not a physician. And also, I, again, I really see it as like a software problem as opposed to a hardware problem. Um, so hypnotism, it, it does... The, the relationship between the hypnotist and the client while the client's being hypnotized is such that it's not just that the, that the hypnotist is speaking to the client with well-chosen words, communicating well-thought-out ideas. It, 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 it's also that the, the, the client has to listen wholeheartedly. So this is part of the reason why sometimes it's one or two or three hours of listening. It's because it's if someone's really listening to how a non-smoker thinks and then making that thinking their own thinking, it's inevitable they're also going to develop a distaste for tobacco smoke. They're also mm. going to see breaks where they breathe clean air as the top tier, most luxurious breaks they could take. But it's when people don't listen, that's where the repetition is necessary. That, hmm. Or if people don't listen wholeheartedly, if people l l listen with their intellect or, or their critical mind, but they don't listen wholeheartedly, they don't take to heart what's being said. Th that's where repetition might be necessary, or in some cases, even many hours of listening might not get through to the client. Yes, the more the client's focused, the more they're listening, the better the results are. And the reason I ask that question is because it does seem, well, we're regularly told now that people's attention spans are far less than they used to be. Yep. And so what is your experience? Do you find people generally are able to focus well or have, is there a problem with focus for many people? I have quite a number of cases where the client has been diagnosed with ADHD hmm. and th th they've told me that they haven't focused that much before in their lives. I, I, I don't want this interview actually to be just about me because at the end of this, I, I want your listeners thinking that they don't have to pay me money to be able to benefit from the work I'm doing. I, ideally, if by the end of this, your listeners think, okay, if that's a good worldview for Luke and his clients, let me see if I can make it my, my own as well. So mm -hmm. I'd be happy after answering this question to, to if you have any questions about, about habits or anything. But to answer the, 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 the question about focus, it, it's that... I do have to, as you might be able to hear, say things that are interesting enough to capture attention and to be pleasant enough to listen to that people feel better listening to me than letting their minds wander to work. So hypnotists famously have compelling voices, but that comes with the territory because if we're not easy to listen to, then 
we're not going to have clients who listen very carefully to us. You just talked there about you don't want this just to be about you. What do you mean by that? Are you hoping that people, do you want to just let people know more about hypnotism in general? No, I actually don't want people to think that they need a professional okay. in order to have better lives. I, I think that while many people are privileged enough that mm. they can hire a professional to achieve their goals or to have better lives, not everyone's in that position or not everyone is convinced that it, it's a worthy use of their money, especially if they have rising bills to pay. I hope to share my insights into, let's say, habit change or, or habits worth adopting because most people adopt new habits without being hypnotized. Right. Most people change their minds on something or they quit smoking without being hypnotized. So mm -hmm. let's look at them. Let's look at what mindsets they had, because I also look to them. My clients who pay me, they, they're privileged enough that they can pay me to shortcut the process of learning for them. But, 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 but let's look at people who succeed in forming new habits or what habits are worth forming, and th th then your listeners can extract what they can from even just this interview. So what do you think is the difference? And as you said, many people are able to successfully create habits, and they find that trigger that they can repeat on a regular basis and make a new behavior automated. So what do you think is the difference between people who are able to do that and the people who do maybe require something such as hypnotism? So one missing piece of the puzzle that I don't hear talked about often enough is the dialogue in your head as you're implementing the new habit. Hmm. Now, as a hypnotist, I, I help people develop better self-talk or dialogue in one's head that's more helpful than inhibiting or, or, or limiting. And I guess because we can't really read each other's minds, it, it, it's not something that's very talked about, yet it is absolutely critical. And we, we can look at professional athletes as people with really good habits sustained over a long time such that they are world-class at what they do. And in their heads, they cannot tell themselves that they're going to lose the game. They can't stay too fixated on the mistake they made a split second ago. They have to set their hearts and minds on winning, and they have to set their hearts and minds on success. And it's not just professional athletics. So I don't know whether you want to keep this part, but currently there's the war going on in Ukraine, and the Ukrainians are surprising everyone by trouncing the Russians. And it's not because of superior equipment necessarily. It's definitely not because of superior numbers. It's because of superior morale. Yeah. It's because the Ukrainians are fighting for their homeland and their independence yeah. and their people. The Russians don't even want to be in the war. Mm. So when I talk about setting your mind on success, setting your mind on victory. It, it, it applies to very high-stakes situations like that, but it also applies to a goal like, let's pick quitting smoking, mm -hmm. where if you start to embark upon a, a stop-smoking journey with the mindset that it's going to be hard and tobacco is more powerful than you and it's like quitting heroin, you're getting in your own way unnecessarily. Hmm. But if you set yourself on a path of quitting smoking 
And inside your head, the dialogue is more like, okay, cigarettes are bundles of dead tobacco leaves. They have no consciousness or will of their own, but you're the human being. You're the conscious, thinking, decision-making human being. Cigarettes have got nothing against you. That mindset, that higher degree of morale causes a higher degree of success. And in my experience with clients, a much higher degree of success. When it comes to habit change, a big missing piece of the puzzle that I don't think enough people are talking about is the dialogue. And I can also use the example of overcoming a fear or phobia, where one of the standard treatments for fears and phobias is, is exposure therapy, where the client or, or, or patient is asked to expose themselves to the triggering stimulus. Yeah. So someone with a fear of spiders is asked to get closer and closer to spiders. But if the dialogue in their head is that the spider is going to jump on them or it's terrifying, that doesn't help the fear. And in some cases, people notice that exposure therapy makes their fear worse. Mm. So the missing piece of the puzzle I often have to fill in, even among clients who've seen a psychologist, is that if you are going to start approaching spiders or looking at images of spiders, here's a helpful thought to keep in your head. They're ugly but harmless. So if in your head you're thinking, they're really ugly, but they're harmless, as you get closer and closer, then you start associating more relaxed, grounded feelings with the, the, the visual image or the proximity to, mm -hmm. to spiders. So that, I know that habit change is a really big topic, and many books have been written about it, but this particular piece of the puzzle I don't think is talked about enough. I, I, I want to dig into behavior change and, and habit mm -hmm. formation and so on. Just before we dig into that, I want to go back to something you said a few minutes ago. You spoke about thinking about smoking as just being a lot of dead leaves, or I forget exactly the words you use. Yep. And I know that you read widely and you read philosophy. Have you read much of Marcus Aurelius? Oh, yes. I'm very influenced by all the Stoics because I actually made a TikTok video recently about, it was titled, uh, 2,000-year-old life advice from a slave and an emperor. I literally just posted it yesterday because even though it's 2,000-year-old life advice, and even though none of us are Roman emperors, the, the, the fact that their advice is so pertinent, even today, for modern human beings around the world in very different civilizations, this speaks to how much we have in common as human beings. Mm -hmm. Whenever someone tries to convince me that we're more different than similar, I, I know it's bollocks. We are much more similar than different. That's why it doesn't have to be a Roman emperor. Halfway around the world, we had the Taoist writers and, and, and the Buddhists writing similar things that benefit us in the 21st century. Yeah. When I talk about there's no hardware problem, hmm. and there are sometimes bugs in the software, this is what I'm talking about. And many of the problems we face today are actually just part of the human condition, which means that many people have thought about it. But yes, I have read Marcus Aurelius. We hope you're enjoying this episode of the Habits and Health podcast, where we believe creating healthy habits should be easy. If you are looking for deep support to create the health and life you want, we invite you to consider one-on-one -on -one coaching sessions with Tony. Coaching sessions give you personalised guidance to fit your unique goals and life situation. Only a limited number of spots are available, but you can easily get started by booking a free introductory call at TonyWinyard.com. Now back to the show. 
the statement you made about the dead leaves in tobacco reminded me of I forget exactly what he said, but it was around about wearing the purple robes that the emperor used to wear. And mm -hmm. it was only the emperors were allowed to wear purple. And it was a very rare color then. Mm -hmm. And only rich people had it. And it came from, I think it was the shellfish or something. Do you, do you remember the passage I'm, I'm referring to? I, I, I don't remember, but I know that it is a very rare dye. I, yeah. I think you're right. It could come from a, a shellfish. And he was saying, I have to remind yourself that your purple robe is merely... A, a dead fish that they've extracted the diaphragm yeah. and remind yourself. And he was always trying to remind himself about certain things and that, that the act of copulation is merely liquids being exchanged or, or something. <laughs> and it's true. It's true. It doesn't have to be disgusting. It, it doesn't have to be disheartening. It's actually quite, in, see, in my opinion, and the, the Stoics would agree with me, truth is liberating, even if the truth seems ugly. Hmm. And I mentioned that halfway around the world, thousands of years ago, the wisdom is still pertinent. So the, the Tibetan Buddhists used to, and still, I, I believe, do something called a, a corpse meditation, where, like the Stoics saying, memento mori, yeah. you imagine yourself decomposing as a corpse. Before we proceed, yes. if you could just explain to people what memento mori is, because I imagine many people don't know that. Yeah, so... Memento mori is a Latin phrase roughly translated as remember that you too inevitably will die. And it's not meant to scare you. It's not meant to dishearten you or depress you. It's meant to cast into stark relief your current aliveness and the full extent of your current aliveness. And I forgot who it was who said it. I, I think it was a Buddhist monk who said, because you're alive, everything is possible. And th that, that's of a flip side to memento mori. But that phrase, it's influenced a lot of culture in the medieval times. So when you look at Hamlet and he's got mm. the skull in his hand saying, alas, poor Yorick. That's an example of the meditation upon death that kind of grounds us and humbles us. And I think also memento mori, when it's applied, it actually gives you much more gratitude for life and therefore you enjoy life more as well. And there's so many problems caused by neglecting the full extent of one's aliveness. Hmm. We talked about smoking cessation. Come on, you wouldn't do that to a child. You wouldn't do that to a cat or a dog or a wild bird or a fox. Hmm. Why are you doing it to yourself? It's because you've forgotten the full extent of your life. People who overeat, people who neglect themselves, people who are hard on themselves, they treat themselves more like objects than like living, breathing human beings. And we could go into a rabbit hole about industrialization and the modern education system, but remembering our aliveness is a message I keep communicating just again and again to different people. You mentioned you do read a lot. You've read a lot around different Eastern, Western philosophy and so on. Has that changed in any way what you do with your work? Absolutely. I read much more philosophy than I do hypnotherapy right. because the science of hypnotism, so words affecting most people to a significant degree, that's very well established. Hmm. But the open-ended questions, the unresolved questions are, what are you going to say to people once their minds are in that accepting, suggestible hmm. state? And 
I never want to be responsible for giving someone a worse worldview than they walked in with. I don't want to be responsible for giving someone even a, 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 a better but incomplete or just not very helpful worldview. Mm-hmm. So I do turn to the multi-thousand-year tradition of philosophy more than the few hundred-year-old philosophy of hypnotism or the hundred-plus-year tradition of psychology for insights and knowledge into how one might live a good life. Mm-hmm. And th- th- those books that have survived the test of time, because not, not every book has survived the test of time, but those books that have survived the test of time did so for good reason. It's because there are universal truths that transcend generations, that transcend cultures. And to me, speak to the common humanity, speak with a tiny bit of knowledge and still say things that are helpful and resonant. So I figure that someone like Marcus Aurelius, who I've never met before and never will met, if he can say things that resonate with me, then I can borrow from his wisdom and then share with someone who I barely know as well. So let's get back to behaviors and habits. So mm-hmm. are, what would you say has, what habits have been most helpful for you in your kind of progress? Yeah, so since we had that wonderful introduction with Memento Mori and the corpse meditation that we have, and because a hypnotist has so little time to make their points, because we have a reputation for rapid change, we have so few hours to make our points that I, I, I can't get to know the client and speak to them specifically, like a psychotherapist. I have to, the, the, this first habit is not going to be too much of a surprise. It's that I intentionally seek critical feedback from my clients about the work that I do. And many people bury their heads in the sand. Many people are afraid to look at what could be bad or gross or what is unpleasant. But it's very much a part of life that say, I I can't help every client or not everything I say is as helpful or wise as in my head I imagine it to be. So just as a Buddhist might imagine themselves one day as a corpse, and a Stoic might imagine that one day they will pass as well, while I'm still telling the story of my life um, day after day, I, I do want to look at not just the bright side of life, but to intentionally counteract the tendency to, to ignore the scary or or the unpleasant by intentionally seeking critical feedback. And this has, so earlier you asked something to the effect of, do all hypnotists practice in a similar way? And I, I said, no. So I've come to realize by intentionally seeking critical feedback that a lot of the received wisdom about hypnotism doesn't hold up to scrutiny. For example, a hypnotist might tell you that everyone can be hypnotized. Everyone's a good candidate. But then you intentionally collect critical feedback and you realize that's wrong. Now, if you never collect critical feedback, your dissatisfied clients are just going to disappear and they don't want to talk with you and you don't even know. So the process or the habit of intentionally seeking critical feedback generates new knowledge. It, it, it disproves points that should be disproven, and it validates 
points that I'm going to keep as knowledge. So uh, again, but I, I don't take for granted that some that one of my clients is opening up their, their minds for me to shape their worldview. That's a very big responsibility. So I do intentionally see critical feedback. It hasn't always been easy. This is why people avoid it, especially since I take pride in my work and this is my only adult career. I do think a lot about it when I get feedback that, that says that the client hasn't changed or what I said wasn't too helpful. But I need the feedback. I can't, if I am going to be the best I can be, I can't operate without the negative critical feedback. I'm racking my brains at the moment trying to think. I don't know if it was Seneca or Epictetus talked about there's the quote that is more known by Shakespeare about it's I'm trying to remember the wording now we're only wronged if we believe it to be or something I forget the so from Shakespeare Polonius in Hamlet said mm. there is no it might or might not that Shakespeare said so much mm. that, that you're probably thinking of something different in, in Hamlet I'm going to misquote him but the, the, there's nothing either good nor bad but thinking makes it yeah. and Seneca said translated, of course, um, that we, we suffer more in imagination than in reality. That's the one I was and trying to remember. Yeah. That actually is how hypnotism actually exerts an effect. Right. So how, how do we have people imagine in their heads for a few hours and be better off afterward? Like, how the heck does that work? 2,000 plus years ago, Seneca nailed it. Right. We suffer more in imagination than in reality. Therefore, right. if we change what we imagine, we reduce or eliminate the unnecessary suffering. And so how easy or difficult is that? Not easy, not obvious, but also, unfortunately, too often disregarded. So the thing is, if we entertain our imagined suffering if we follow those lines of thought, if, if we just explore those lines of thought and, and we expand upon them and we dwell upon them, in my view, now I'm speaking as a hypnotist, I'm not trained in any other profession, but as a hypnotist, that way of thinking multiplies the suffering. Hmm. We, we have to look at the thinking of people who don't have that suffering or who don't have that problem for insights. So this is why I read philosophy. Because I, I am looking for sort of those insights into the human condition that teach my clients so that they can reduce their unnecessary stuff. Obviously, like we all are going to at some point get sick in our lives. We all are going to, if, if we're adventurous enough, we're going to be injured either, either psychically or, or physically. And at some point, we are going to pass, all of us. So we can't get rid of that. But there's so much unnecessary suffering that we perpetuate in our heads and hearts that we don't have to if we got clear guidance as to how to think instead. So it's not easy, but it's also not pursued enough. At least I'll give credit to the hypnotists for putting in the effort to teach people ways to think that reduce the imagined wrongs or the imagined slights. If I may share a metaphor, one thing I've often been saying to my adult clients, so most of my clients are adults, but this resonates. It's not just children who believe in monsters in the dark. Adults imagine threats in the unknown. And those imagined threats in the unknown are just as unreal 
as the child's imagined monsters in the dark. So an adult who's afraid to speak in public, to share their very best ideas in public, they imagine that in the audience, there could be someone who jumps up and points and tears down their argument. That They imagine that their career could be derailed by some unseen force. And it's, it's just like the childhood monsters in the dark. Yeah, absolutely. It's all around the same sort of thing as perceiving that someone's offended you because have they really offended you? You choose to take offense, don't you? And Marcus Aurelius was fantastic at, at articulating yeah. the, 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 the idea that you don't have to accept every gift that's offered. Yeah. And we do have some say over. So in common language, often people say, you made me angry. Yeah. But that's a false model of how anger works. It's mm. you heard the words and you usually through unconscious processes, you put meaning on those words yeah. that add up to an insult. And then you felt anger as one does when he's insulted. But it's in that, as Viktor Frankl said, the, the space between stimulus and response, that's where we can think. That's where consciousness comes in. That's where stoicism or other life philosophies like that can step in to say, hey, whoa, wait a minute. You don't have to accept this would-be insult that's offered. Mm -hmm. you, you can recognize that, say, your best friend's opinion of you matters a whole lot more than this random person on the internet. There's, there's, I don't know if you're familiar with a great book by Bill Irvine about insults. I forget the title of the book. I think he, he went for a year with trying to get people to insult him because he, he <laughs> felt that he couldn't be insulted because it was it was all about perception, wasn't it? Yeah. Do I feel insulted? Well, you, you can try hard to insult me, but I don't feel insulted. Yeah. Interestingly, I haven't read that book, I, I, but, but I, I, I am reminded of a trainer in a discipline related to hypnotism called NLP, L. Michael Hall, who identified uninsultability as one of the more desirable states of mind. Hmm. And I, I think at, at first, I didn't really pay too much attention to that. But if you unpack it, Uninsultability means you're crystal clear about who you are and your worth and the positive impacts that you have made and will continue to make on others such that whatever words someone throws at you are just noise in the wind yeah. relative to the strength of who you actually are. So there's actually a lot to this idea of uninsultability. We've talked about quite a few different books in the last few minutes. Is there a book that's really moved you for any reason? Yeah. And I, so I had a hard time picking one. I did think about this because this was a question you posed before we talked today. And the one I came up with kind of relates to a conversation we talked about earlier. It's called The Denial of Death by Ernest Becker. And it actually won the Pulitzer Prize, I, I, I think, after he passed in 1974. So we're all, most of us are probably familiar that Sigmund Freud, the, the founder of modern psychology, identified repressed sexuality mm. as the cause of much what was called neurosis, but which we now call anxiety. And he was working in the Victorian era, and he had a very select group of clients from whom he drew his conclusions. But fast forward many decades, Ernest Becker revisited that hypothesis 
And he posits that rather than repressed sexuality, it's our repressed mortality that is the root of neurosis, or I guess now we're calling it anxiety. Hmm. And I, I think he's spot on with that. And of course, it recalls our earlier conversation about how the, the Buddhists and the Stoics would very intentionally unrepress their knowledge of their mortality to feel more whole, to right. feel more complete. So it, it's not just 40 or 50 years ago that this hypothesis was formed. It, it was just very well articulated in the book, The Denial of Death by, by Ernest Becker. And there's a lot more to it. And so he came up with, a, I guess I'll call it a, a philosophy or a school of thought called terror management theory, I believe that suggests that, for example, religion, or it seems like every guy has the desire to create something that outlives him. But he, he has this theory that much of what drives humanity is to manage the terror around our knowledge of our mortality. It's that we're aware of our mortality in ways that other animals don't seem to be or to be as much of. So, yeah, that that book made quite an impact on me and definitely has informed my sessions with clients since I read it. It sounds a fascinating book, so I probably need to go and look that up. Mm -hmm. if, if people want to find out more about you, Luke, where, where would they go? Like your website, social media, and so on? Yeah, so probably the best place to hear me talk would be my YouTube channel, which is at Morpheus Hypnosis, or I mentioned I have a newer TikTok channel with more concise sound bites bites also at morpheus hypnosis and if the listeners considering doing personal one-on-one -on -one work with me the best way to reach me is through the morpheus clinic for hypnosis at www.morpheusclinic.com to finish is there a quotation that you particularly like yeah again it's so hard to pick one quote out of the whole entire universe of quotes but it, it is one that we pinpointed through our earlier discussion. And it's when Seneca said that we suffer more in imagination than we do in reality, because that's the crux of my life work. Hmm. And it's under-recognized, which is why it has to be repeated. And when, can you recall when you first came across that? I, I can't recall, but I, I know that I got into Stoicism later than I got into Buddhism. So if I pinpoint it on the timeline of my life, probably it would be my later 20s or early 30s. And can you recall, was it that particular quote that really stuck with you for, for, all, for all this time? Well, I, I, I think it resonated with me mainly because it took many diverse, disparate thoughts about how we can reduce suffering and because i'm a hypnotist through hypnotism and it condensed it into well as few words as, right. as it is it, it's yeah i would say i had a similar idea but not nearly as well articulated since i started getting into hypnotism but that quote just nails exactly how few hours of listening to some good grounded truthful ideas can help someone tremendously well, look, I think we'll leave it there. So thank you for, for sharing your wisdom and experience. It was fascinating. You're welcome. And thank you for having me on. Next week is episode 69 with Elizabeth Gasson Hargreaves. 
15 years ago, her son Charlie had less than 24 hours to live had he not received some vital antibiotics which saved his life. He was six weeks old at the time and had bacterial meningitis and this set Elizabeth on a journey which led her to become a functional medicine practitioner and nutritionist and we discuss about what happened and, and how her son survived and what that taught her. So it's quite a fascinating episode. That's next week, Elizabeth Gasson Hargreaves. Hope you've enjoyed this week's episode. If you know anyone who gets some value from this, please do share the episode with them and hope you have a great week. Thanks for tuning in to the Habits and Health Podcast, where we believe creating healthy habits should be easy. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and leave us a review on your favorite podcast app. Sign up for email updates and learn about coaching and workshop opportunities at TonyWinyard.com. See you next time on the Habits and Health Podcast.